I actually, before I, I get into my stuff, I'd just like to say, um, anybody in here uh, just in, in, in struggle time? Anybody struggling? Anybody there? Anybody there with me? So uh, I talked about it last week. I'm not going to go uh, <laughs> whole story again. Man, we, I feel like with our family, we've had just a, a, a significant period of time of just struggle. Um, it's been hard. And um, man, keeping your eyes on Christ during that time is not easy, is it? Especially when there's stuff that you're like, I have to do things. Anybody in here a doer, a fixer? Anybody, whenever things start falling apart, you're like, what do I do? I got to do something. I need to be doing. What does Christ call us to do? Be still and remember who is God. I forget very often who God is. Very often. And I will pretend like I'm him. Now, I wouldn't say that out loud, right? Even though I just did. I wouldn't say to anybody, oh, I think I, I think I have the omnipotent power of God in heaven, but I'll act like it, right? Things out of my control will be going on all around me. Life will be spiraling and I will start doing because that's what a good man does, right? Instead of looking and saying, wait, pause. That's funny. That's one of my Crockett's favorite words. Whenever I'm talking and he wants to talk instead of me, they say, Pause. But I need to sometimes, I think Christ is sometimes telling me that. Pause, pause. Remember one very all important fact. I am God and I haven't lost control. For those of you in here who've been walking through that kind of season or you're walking through it right now, for those of you joining us online and you're walking through sickness and you know, and you're feeling this in, in, in a great degree, pause for one minute. And just remember, God is still God. He's not caught off guard. He's not scared. Isn't that amazing? Anybody walking through uh, scary things right now? Do you know that God's not afraid of what you're walking through? Does that not change things for you? You know, when you're walking through something scary and the person next to you is not scared, do you know what makes you feel? Comforted or crazy? Or like they're crazy. When it's God, there's nothing but comfort, right? When you can look and see him and know he's not afraid of where I am. We can draw comfort in that. So I want to pause and just pray. And pray for these things that are going on in all these families and in my family and in your families. And let's just trust God that he can do what we can't. And let's trust that he's not afraid. Jesus, I pray that you give us a moment right now to reset. God, I, I, man, I struggled this week. I struggled last night, even just taking time to do finishing things on my message. I had had to just pause, I had to stop. I, I feel like I couldn't even focus on you. God, I'm sorry that I'm letting the burdens of life steal my attention from you. God, I'm sorry for where I have reversed in my mind what our roles are, that I'm the one that does and fixes the uncontrollables and you're the one that I can kind of just watch me work. When the opposite is true, I have no power over things I can't control and you do and I get to sit back and watch you work in ways I can't. Jesus, I do pray for everybody that is battling illness and disease 
and all kinds of things right now. Lord, I pray for healing. Lord, I pray for our world that's being covered up with this. Lord, I pray for all the things that everybody brought in here as a burden. God, I pray that first and foremost, you'd help them trust you with that burden. And then second, help us today learn what it means to bear one another's burdens. To walk through this together. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, now that we're here, let's walk through this. Does anyone in here know anyone that does weird things? Anybody want to share? I'm kidding. Uh, what about this? So sometimes we do weird stuff, right? Um, anybody who likes to do any kind of uh, do-it-yourself stuff, whether you're good at it or not, we don't have to admit to that in here. Um, what's the first thing you do when you pick up a drill? Right? Must be done. It's a have to, right? You can't not do it. If you don't do it, the whole project falls apart. You get two, exactly two, for exactly that long every time you pick up the drill. Anybody like to cook? A couple of you? Okay, good. I like to cook. What's the first thing you do when you pick up a pair of tongs? Snap, snap. Two, exactly two, to make sure they work or the food falls apart, right? Why do we do it? Because you have to. We have people do all kinds of weird stuff, right? We have these things that we do that we're like, that's just the way you do it, right? That's how you have to make sure it's done. I saw a, a, a meme the other day that made me laugh. And uh, it was, hey, I just locked the door. And your brain says, did you really? He said, yeah, I just saw I do it. But what if you didn't? Yeah, I should go check, right? Anybody do that? Anybody like, ah, as soon as you think about it, yeah, I better check. I know I did it. I saw it. I, I, I watched my hand turn the knob. But I got to go check it again because what if I didn't? <laughs> what if it's a hallucination? We do weird stuff, right? Sometimes we do weird stuff because we think we have reasons. Usually we do weird stuff just because we do it, right? Because that's just the way we've seen it done or whatever. Have you ever thought about why we do what we do when we gather as the church? Why do we do what we do? How much of it comes from scripture? How much of why what we do comes directly from the word? How much of it comes from traditions? And how much of it comes just simply from our preferences? And can we decide which of those three things is the most important? Today we're going to study a passage about the first church, the very first church, what they did and why we should do those things too. So the title of this message is, what does the church do? Last week we talked about what is the church? What is it? What is it supposed to be? What does it exist as? And we talked about how the church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ and the gathering of disciples. That's what the church is. Today, and this could be like a, a, a 15 part message uh, with lots and lots of passages, but I'm focusing on one about what the church does. Now, I'm leaving some things out of here because we'll cover them in, uh, as we continue this series. We cover a couple different um, areas of the church and people that are involved in the church. But today, we're going to tra- talk generally about what does the church do. So I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. This is beautiful, right? So right after the Holy Spirit comes, Pentecost happens, right? So uh, there's the most people in Jerusalem that have been there ever since the Passover, right? This is the next big festival. So there are people from all over the world around the, the, um, the 120 people that were left following Jesus, right? There are thousands that had followed him at one point. It dwindled to 120. That's who was left after he died, right? 120. And they're sitting there waiting around and, uh, you know, he, he, he died. He, re- he rose from the dead. They believed it. But only 120 stuck around. 
Uh, anybody in here surprised by that number? How many people were fed by him? Thousands. How many people were healed by him? Hundreds. How many people heard him speak miraculous words? Thousands upon thousands. And then Jesus Christ, the ultimate minister at the end of it, had 120 that stuck around. 120. They're in this upper room. They're hanging out. They're waiting around. And uh, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. That's what Jesus said to do, right? He says, hey, or the angels, as Jesus is sending, the angels saying, hey, wait for the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to get power and you're going to be witnesses, right? Holy Spirit shows up. It, uh, he shows up in the, the form of a flaming tongue, rests on them. They walk outside and they start talking. They are witnessing. And everybody around them, though they are from all over the world, everyone hears them in their own language. Anybody in here think that would be pretty miraculous? Pretty stinking outstanding. And they don't just speak kind words. They don't say, oh, life's going to be so much better now. We've got things figured out. They give a convicting message of who Jesus was and who killed him and why that death was necessary and why forgiveness is needed for every person listening. They gave the gospel. And you know what Jesus did? He saved about 3,000 people that day. <laughs> it was outstanding. I mean, this is people who were showing up for a Jewish holiday who came there probably hearing all the bad news about Jesus. And oh, thank goodness that's over. That guy's a loon. All those people are nuts. And then all of a sudden here, here walks out these men filled with the Holy Spirit speaking to them in languages that they understand in their native tongue. And they're like, that's real. And they ask forgiveness and they get saved. And we have the first church starts with 120. Then there's 3000 added. Anybody think 3000 added in one day is a a good uh, statistic? It's not bad. (laughs) It's pretty good. So that's the the background here. So these 3000 people get saved. And then we see the first church. Acts 2, 42 and 43 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching into the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All right, we're going to break that down just for a little bit. So what I want us to understand, the main point here, what the church does, just so you'll hear me say this over and over again, the church devotes herself to things, okay? There are right things for the church to be devoted to. Are there wrong things for the church to be devoted to? Yes, we'll go through that. All right, the word devoted is the Greek word proskatereo, and it means to continue something with intense effort, with the possible implication of despite difficulty. So intensely working for something, even when it's really, really hard, right? So this is, I mean, devoting, this is like really working hard for something, even when it's difficult, even when there's things that are up against you, even when it's not easy. In fact, especially when it's not easy, devoting yourself to doing something no matter what. We're about to get a list of what the early church, by God's design, committed to chasing with all of, the, all of their might. Do you think that churches ever devote their, themselves to things that aren't worth devotion? Is that idolatry? Yes. So the first thing I want us to understand, when the church is devoted to what Christ says to be devoted to, that is worship of God. When the church devotes herself to anything other than what Christ says to devote to, that is the worship of a different God. Is that a big deal? Very much so. All right, so the first thing that they were called to be devoted to was the apostles' teaching. The first thing that the church must be wholly devoted to is to the word of God. 
The word supersedes anything else we desire, demand, or even believe. So above my beliefs, above my opinions, above my desires, above my demands, above my anything is God's word. It is the ultimate authority in the church. Do we understand that? So what that means is when there comes conflict with the word of God and what I want, guess what should win every time? God's word. What if I really want it? It doesn't matter, right? So they have to devote themselves to and say, I'm going to stand firm on what the word of God is and I'm going to let that dictate what church is. So instead of saying church is what it's always been, church is what I've always experienced, what if we took a step back, which is what I said we were going to be doing in this series, and said, let's desire church to be what God says it is. Now, is there room for preferences inside of that? Of course. There's lots of freedoms in some of the things that we're going to do, but we can't miss what the word is. Does that make sense? A lot of times we'll work backwards there. I'll do it, right? We'll start with what already exists and then say, well, let's read the Bible a little bit and add some stuff in. What if we stepped all the way back and said, wait, let's start with what does the Bible say the church is? And then see what fits God's design for the church and add that if it fits. And if not, then it's gone. So you have to be devoted to the word. Question one for you guys this morning, are you devoted to God's word? Do you study it? Do you read it? Do you allow it to change you? Do you allow it to, to change what you do in your uh, daily lives? When you show up for a Sunday school lesson or a life group uh, uh, time, when you're studying the word of God, when you're studying on your own, when you're sitting here, when I'm speaking on a Sunday morning or Kenneth is or Stephen is or anybody else, are you listening to the word of God for it to change you or are you listening to it for it to change someone else? Anybody ever sat there and heard somebody say something and been like, I hope they heard that. Anybody ever just looked right at them? You're bold. I'm like, straight down. Right? We do that. I do that. We struggle. That's not devoting ourselves to God's words. That's devoting ourselves to the change of other people to our preferences. Devoting myself to God's word means I'm going to open it up and say, this has to change me every single time I read it. Because I'm not there yet. And where I see it different than what I want, I have to change. The next thing he says that they devoted themselves was to the fellowship. That is the Greek word koinonia. Can anybody repeat that koinonia? It's a good word, right? Koinonia. This is uh, an association involving close mutual relations and involvement. Okay. Baptists believe we have the lockdown on a fellowship, right? Traditional Baptist, we know this, right? What's required for a fellowship? Casserole. At least one. Maybe homemade ice cream if we're lucky. It's an event where you bring some food, everybody shares, we pick what, uh, we, we secretly talk about whose is actually the best while we tell everybody that theirs was the best. Caught ya. <laughs> but that's not what this word is. So fellowship wasn't an event. Fellowship wasn't a thing you went to. Fellowship was something you did. It's doing life together with others. The early church devoted themselves to doing life 
together. This is what we're really, really, really trying to cultivate in life groups. If you've joined a life group, I I hope you've gotten to start to see that. Where you get to go in there and actually bear burdens with one another. I I, I have missed out. My goodness, I'm I'm trying to think of how long it's been since I've gotten to be at our life group because of sickness uh, in, in, in our family's lives for this past several weeks, few weeks. I miss it. You want to know why? Because every time I get to walk in there, I get to sit down and I get to say, this is happening. I'm struggling and I need prayer. And you know what they do? They pray. They love me. They hug me. They walk with me through it. They share their burdens. And I realize I'm not the only person struggling. And I can help bear those other burdens as well. This is beautiful because that's what koinonia is. It's doing life with other believers. And the reason that we see this most happen in life groups is actually ancient. That's how the early church met, uh, uh, did church as well. We'll see this soon. So he devotes himself to the, to the word of God, to the apostle teaching, which, was, which eventually becomes God's word to the whole church, right? They devote themselves to the word of God. They devote themselves to the fellowship, to doing life together. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. So this is when the whole church comes together for a meal. It can be referring to times just to, to get together and to practice large group fellowship, large group koinonia, where we get to say, hey, because what's a great way to, to get to know a family? Sit down and eat with them, right? Anybody feel that way? Anybody uh, agree there? If you sit at the table and eat with somebody, that is a way to get to know somebody on a different level. I think it is. Food's a big deal. I love food. But we can pursue fellowship on a large scale, breaking bread, sit down, let's eat together. Let's, let's spend some time with each other. But primarily, this is going to be referring to communion. They devoted themselves to this. So communion in the early church was a little more substantive in the early church than it is now, Right? Uh, back then, it was probably the meal for some people. Does that make sense? So even though it was only uh, bread and wine, it was, uh, and that, that seems like uh, an appetizer or whatever to somebody in here today, that was what a lot of people, that was their meal. That was what they would eat for the night, right? They would sit down, they'd get their bread, they would have that, and, and they would be doing it, it would be communion. They'd be celebrating it as the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. But it was their meal that their family would eat together. Why would the church be devoted to communion? Because communion is our hard reset. Uh, any tech people in this room? Anybody like technology stuff? Anybody like trying to figure out this stuff? Anybody hate technology? There's some more, okay. When your internet stops working at your home, what's the very first thing you do? Turn it off, turn it back on again, right? That is step number one on almost any problem. Now, a lot of times that really fixes it, right? Communion is supposed to be the hard reset for our lives. It brings us back to the foot of the cross where we find equal ground with everyone in this room. You know why we need that hard reset? Because we quickly start putting each other on different levels, don't we? You're up here, you're down here, you're kind of in the middle, you're, I'm not sure yet, you're, I'm obviously way up here. And then we have communion. Where we're reminded, I am nothing but for the grace of Jesus Christ. Robin is nothing but for the grace of Jesus Christ. So though she is a far better person than I am, I get to go to communion with her and say, equal footing. We are here together for the purpose of Christ and nothing else. It's a hard reset for the church to refocus on Christ himself and to realign ourselves and our view of ourselves, our perspective of how important we are 
with Christ and say, man, we are here together. It puts in better perspective all other things that tempt our hearts for devotion. Because what we have to say is, okay, all this other stuff. So this is what Christ is telling the church to be devoted to. We're tempted to be devoted to all other things. What we're supposed to ask is, what is that thing in light of the cross? In light of the cross, what does this matter? If the answer is little, then it should matter very little. But we don't ask that question very often, do we? We don't want it to get there because then we have to get rid of some of our preferences. Then we have to get rid of some of our wants. Then we have to put others ahead of ourselves because that's what Christ has called us to do. If we ask the question in light of the cross, in view of the cross, what does this thing matter? Sometimes that answer is going to be a lot and people are not going to want it to mean a lot, right? The word of God in the light of the cross means a lot and we must be devoted to it. So even when it's bothersome, even when it hurts our feelings, even when it's not what we want to do, we must devote ourselves to it. But some other things we don't have to be devoted to, do we? They also devoted themselves, lastly, to the prayers. The church was devoted to prayer because she depended on God's power, not their own. She trusted in a God who could do infinitely more and better than she could. Does anybody in here, and this might just be me, struggle with their devotion to prayer? Anybody struggle there? I struggle all the time with this. I think I've confessed this many times in here. I'll confess it as often as I need to. I struggle being devoted to prayer. Who in here tries to control what you have no control of? Anybody? Okay, a couple of you. Some of you guys are, are you've had the same kind of weeks I've had. You're, you're really answering these. That's good. Who in here gets stressed out when you're trying to control what you have no control of and it doesn't work? <laughs> we got two hands up on a couple of those. <laughs> Who in here stresses your entire family out when you're trying to control what you can't control and you're getting stressed out? There you go. Ashley's like, Colin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've been living in that. Do you know what the answer to that is then? Devote yourself to prayer. If you are stressed out, living in anxiety, living in worry, living in fear over things out of your control and you're stressing out, stressing your family out, stop, pause, as Crockett would say, pause and pray and remember to be still and remember who is God. I think there are several temptations that lure us away from prayer, right? One of them is our self-reliance and pride, right? I won't pray because I'm like, no, I'm a man. I have to get this done. I'm an adult. I must, I, I got to figure this out. I got to do this. I, 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 I walked myself into here. I got to get myself out. Anybody ever heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves? Anybody know where it is in the Bible? It's not. <laughs> and so we like to depend on ourselves. I think another thing that stops us from praying, I can struggle with this. Instead of praying, I'll complain and criticize and gossip. Anybody else do that? Anybody else need to struggle with the truth? Okay. Um, Right? Quick temptation for me. 
You know, when things go bad, things go wrong, it's very easy to, instead of devoting myself to prayer, to devote myself to make sure everybody else knows whose fault it is. Because that fixes things, right? Doesn't that fix everything? As long as everyone you know knows whose fault it was, we're all good. It fixes the problem, right? Wrong. Fixes nothing. We devote ourselves to complaining and criticizing and gossip when God said, no, devote yourself to prayer. Sometimes I think the other thing that stops us from being devoted to prayer is fear of not getting what we want. Anybody ever been afraid to pray for something because you're afraid God might say no? Like, well, what if he says no? And that's where our trust struggles, right? Can I trust a God who might not do what I want him to do? Who in here uh, had your parents at one point do something you didn't want them to do? <clears throat> if you had parents, this has happened, right? Uh, who in here, your parents gave you everything you wanted every time you asked for it? I hope not. I, you're, you're probably terrible to be around. <laughs> did they do it because they hated you? Or did they not give you some of the things you asked for because maybe that was actually best for you? And these are human parents, right? Parents that are fallible, that mess up, that make mistakes all the time. And I am the top of that list. But I promise you when Crockett asks for candy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I say no, it's not because I dislike him. I love him and I want him to keep his teeth. <laughs> Even if he can't see it at the time. And so we have to learn to trust that we have a good father as our God. So that's what they devoted themselves to. Okay, we're going to keep coming back to this devotion thing. But the, it says, and we saw and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. Oh, it's a, it's a word that, uh, a, a Greek word is, is, is phobos, and it comes from a word of fear and respect and, and wonder of something, okay? So it's a very complex word. You could have this toward, when you see something that is just utterly amazing. Our purpose as the church is to live in awe of God, to worship him. Far too often, we are too in awe of ourselves, our stuff, and our work to be in awe of God. I'm too in awe with my new phone to be in awe of God. I'm too in awe of my new whatever to be in awe of God. I'm too in awe with getting what I want to be in awe of God. Because the thing is that you will be in awe of what you devote yourself to. Whatever you devote yourself to, that's what you're going to worship. If you devote yourself to the things God's told you to devote yourself to, you are going to be in awe of God and worshiping him. If you devote yourself to things that God has not told you to be devoted to, you will be in awe of those things and you will worship them. And that is idolatry. It says that wonders and signs are being done. Notice that these weren't being done by the apostles, but through them. God was doing amazing, impossible things at this early church. I want you to understand something. God never asks any of us in this room or any human in history to do something miraculous or impossible. Did you know that? God doesn't ask us to do the impossible. You don't know why? If God said, hey, Colin, I want you to start like... Uh, speak in a way that everybody in this room can hear in a native language, even if they don't know it. Can I make myself do that? I cannot. You know who can? Him. You know what God can tell me to do? 
Colin, stand on stage and speak and watch what I do. God's the one that does the miraculous. And sometimes this obedience can be extremely difficult. Anybody ever uh, felt like God called you something that was really difficult to do? Anybody ever say no to it? Anybody ever walk away from it? God calls us to simple obedience. Sometimes it's radical obedience. Sometimes it's very difficult obedience. But he's the one that does the impossible when we walk in obedience. Let's read a little more. Starting in verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Have you ever felt like you attended church? So first of all, they were together. Anybody ever felt like you attended church with a lot of people, but none of them were for you or on your team? Some people felt that. The church should be the place that you find the most encouragement, the most support, and the most help anywhere on the planet. Why does this not happen? Because we devote ourselves to the wrong things. Since they had all things in common. Does this mean that every one of the thousands of believers at this earliest church had the same preferences? Anybody believe that? Anybody think that all 3,120 people there had the exact same preferences on everything? No, it does not. Of course not. They were together on what they were devoted to, even if they differed on things that were not worth their devotion. They could differ on things not worth their devotion because it doesn't matter as long as they were together on what they were devoted to. It says they were selling their possessions and belongings and, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Anybody think that's pretty uh, amazing? This group of people got together, some of them for the first time, 3,000 all of a sudden showing up and they're sitting here meeting together on a weekly basis. They're, they're hanging out. And if they saw somebody that had need, they'd be like, oh, I'll sell this and give this to you. Has anybody really gotten to witness that? This was the church. You see, the church cares for one another by loving God and others more than loving stuff. Most shocking was that these people didn't do it because they were asked to. They did it because they saw a need and they wanted to fill it because they had a generous God and they wanted to be a generous people. Nowhere did the apostles say, start doing this. The church just did it. I want to read a couple passages that support that. First of all, we're going to read 1 John three sixteen through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So John's saying, how in the world can you even claim to have God's love in you if you see someone that has a need and you just say no? Do you worship God through generosity? Or do you worship your stuff by keeping it? And I want to understand this isn't just about financial struggles. The church is to support in every way. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Anybody in here walking with a burden? Anybody have a burden today? Lucky people. I walked in with lots of them. Do you know I can't carry them by myself? Can't. I try to, but I can't. And part of the church being a generous church is saying, let's walk through this together. 
James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We're supposed to bear one another's burdens. We're supposed to bear one another's sins by being a safe place to come and confess and say, Hey, I'm struggling and I need you to pray for me that I can be healed. Let's read verses 46 through 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Okay, so this gives us the schedule for the church for about 1600 years. So we're going to get some history here. This is going to be a lot of fun. So the early church for about 1600 years met once a week, usually on Sunday mornings to celebrate Christ's resurrection. So it was called the Lord's day because Sunday was the day that the whole church or Sunday was the day that Christ rose from the dead. So the whole church would come together once a week on Sunday morning and meet all together. Then they met throughout the week in smaller groups like our life groups in each other's homes for deeper fellowship, discipleship and accountability. The early church model, that's what they did for 1,600 years, and especially starting with the earliest church. That was their scheduled meeting. So when did we start doing so much more? Anybody uncomfortable yet? Here, let's, let's talk through some, some uh, history. It'll be fun. Anybody know when we started dressing up in church? I don't think I've said this in a long time. We started dressing up in church when there was a class system in the church and you had uh, the, the royalty and the, the, the high class that could go to nice church with the good priests and all that stuff. This is back, uh, this is a few hundred years ago. And then you had low church, which was for the common folk, right? Those like the peasants in this room, <laughs> right? And you couldn't escape your class. Where you were born is where you stayed for your whole life. Well, suddenly the economy spread across the world and we started being able to sell things. And so merchants who were technically part of the peasants were able to amass a little bit of money. Do you know what those merchants did with the first uh, amount of wealth they got? They bought one set of clothes that looked like the high class people. You know why? So they could sneak into high church with the fancy people. Anybody think that anything about that was honoring to Jesus? That's where we got our process for dressing up to go to church, where church clothes came from was so that somebody could sneak in to look like they belonged with high class people and not have to be with the poor, lowly folk like us. The Puritans a few hundred years ago are some of the ones that started meeting more often. And you see this and it was for, I mean, man, they, if you've ever read Puritan stuff, um, when they met together, do you know how long they would pray for their uh, opening prayer time? Typically two hours. There'd be a two hour time period of prayer followed by a time of, of, uh, of meeting. Then they'd take a break. Then they'd come back and they'd meet and talk some more. Sermons lasted hours, plural. And there, somebody had the job. This is one of my favorites. Uh, there was a job inside of the church of somebody walking around with a big stick. And when people fell asleep, you hit them with it. Wouldn't that be a fun job? Pretty cool, huh? That's where we started seeing some of these all-day events or longer-day events and uh, more meetings because they felt like this would make better Christians. And then we continued this tradition, right? We saw some of the things we liked and we're like, let's continue that. Let's continue some of these things. Because one of the things we like to believe inside of our world today and we've believed for a long time is busyness is next to 
godliness. If I remain busy with lots of things to do, that automatically must mean I am godly. If I'm busy, especially with church things, I am godly. Has anybody in here, I wonder if anybody will answer this. I don't know if they will. I'm, I'm passing, I'm not asking anyways. Has anybody in here ever misprioritized your family because of the church? Who in here thinks that honored Jesus? Let's keep going, because this is fun. So they, uh, they met together and they did, did this with glad and generous hearts. Instead of focusing on what they didn't have or what they preferred, they were thankful and generous. Today, today, many churches are filled with the envious and the greedy because we're devoted to the wrong things. It says that they are praising God, having favor with all the people. Praising God. Let's talk about this for a minute. Kenneth, this is going to be fun. We're going to talk about music. <laughs> We've discussed this nearly every week for over a year. But worship is never less than singing to God, but it is certainly more. So here's my question. How did the early church choose what songs they were going to sing and what instruments were going to be a part of it? Anybody know? They chose what was normal in their culture. So here's the big question. When did worship wars begin? Do we have worship wars today? Everybody's already so uncomfortable. I like this. They began a long time ago. Did you know that in the early church, within the first 200 years, there's a humongous, humongous fight over whether instruments should be allowed at all in the church. Now, the Jewish Christians were like, what are you talking about? We've used instruments for thousands of years. God said, play the cymbals and the lute and, uh, and praise to him, right? God said to do that. But then the Greeks were like, no, 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 no. That's bringing emotions in here. We don't like emotions. We want to be serious and put together. No music, only songs, only like, let's, let's do chants, Right. That was a fight within the first couple hundred years of the church. It existed right then. In the Byzantine era, there was an instrument that was created. Do you know what that instrument was? An organ. Did you know that that was the most worldly instrument known to man at the time? And if church members caught their church leaders trying to sneak an organ into their church, they would cut it up and burn it in the street because it had no business being in the house of God. Though that was done. They would literally sneak them in organs, pipe organs. Do you know how big those things are? They would sneak pipe organs in at night so that they wouldn't be cut up and burned because these people believed they didn't belong in the church. Soon after that, do you know what the next, one of the other instruments was that was a big fight to get to church? Piano. You know why? Pianos were saloon instruments where songs like Amazing Grace, which was called a saloon song and told that it did not belong in the church, was first sung. Who in here thinks this is wildly funny that some of the most things that are, are very easily accepted and traditional for us were fights for the church before? Southern gospel music. Did you guys know, some of you guys might've been there for it. There was a fight to bring Southern gospel music into the church. You wanna know why? It was worldly country music is what it was called. Worldly music. It was a fight to bring it in. Does the worship war continue today? As long as humans resist change. Does anyone else in here think that the worship wars happen because we devote ourselves to the wrong things? It says they had favor with all the people. 
Jesus said that the world's going to hate us because it hated him, but we shouldn't earn their hate on our own by being self-righteous or greedy or petty or gossips or mean or bad tippers. What is the reputation of Clinging Ridge in our community? That's a question we should be asking. Is it a place that people know they can safely come and seek Christ? Or is it a place that someone says, I can't come there because I might see you. And you are not kind to me when I see you outside of here. Lastly, the Lord added the number day by day, those who are being saved. I want to say this. Healthy churches grow. Remember from last week, growth begins with the maturing of those who are already there, right? Maturity must happen before growth. But uh, then God's going to bring new people in. I want us to understand something. I think there's a difference between growth and fattening. Some, uh, who in here is above the age of 23, 25? Anybody over 25-ish? Okay. Are you done growing? In some ways. <laughs> Love you, Josh. We're done growing in some ways. I'm not growing any taller, but I can still grow, right? Is that healthy growth? For the most part, no. <laughs> most of my growth these days has, has not been the most healthy growth. I get fat. You know what I think uh, how churches get fat? When our pursuit of growth is, hey, you that's already attending that church over there, I think you should come to my church over here. Oh, your church is doing that? Well, our church is doing this. This is why you should be here. That's growth by fat. Let's just take people from other churches to like swap churches around. Growth, true growth, is when you have something added to the body that wasn't already there. When Jesus Christ saves someone and makes them a member of a local body of a church. Healthy churches grow through evangelism. Do you share your faith with the people you work with, live near, and see regularly? Do you pray for those opportunities? And do you understand the urgency to do so because those people you work with live near and see regularly if they don't know Christ are lost and bound for hell without him? Or do you see them on a regular basis and just think, well, that's just Jim. That's just Sally. That's just whoever. That's just, uh, uh, that's just him. Instead of having a godly burden for their soul. I'd like to ask you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads with me. I have a few questions I want to ask just as we wrap this up. My first one is this. What are you devoted to? Are you devoted to the word, to true fellowship, to communion, to prayer? Or are you devoted to your preferences, to your traditions, to your small group of people that think the way you do and your own abilities? Second of all, what are you in awe of? What do you worship? Are you in awe of God or are you in awe of yourself? Third, I want to ask you this. Are you helping to meet the needs of those you're being the church with? Or do you only see your own needs and your own wants? Are you bearing the burdens of other people in this church with them? Or are you adding to their burdens with your comments and with your attitude? Lastly, are you sharing your faith? 
I don't know anybody that attends here regularly that wouldn't say they want Clean and Rich to grow, but it grows through you sharing your faith with people Christ has put in your life. Are you doing that? Jesus, call us to be the church that you created. Let us do what the early church did. Let us devote ourselves to your word, to the true fellowship of doing life together. Let's devote ourselves to communion where we find common ground at the foot of the cross. And let us devote ourselves to prayer. Trusting a God that can do far more than anything anybody else could do. And by those devotions, let that drive every decision we make. And let us not be devoted to a single other thing and practice idolatry. In your name I pray. Amen. Please stand and respond however God leads you.